Hey, Acton. Hey, George. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm, yeah. a little, I'm a little worn out, but I'm happy. She's worn I'm out. She's been, she's been working out. I've been working out. <laughs> working my body now. Let's work my mind. Let's do it. What are we doing today? We are going to talk about women of a certain age. What is that age? Mm, I think we're in it. <laughs> I think we've hit that. <laughs> my mother tells this great story about how when I was young, I, I think she was probably in her 30s or maybe just very early 40s, and I called her middle aged. and She thought that was hilarious. <laughs> That 30s was middle-aged. Or, or just like, yeah, I, I think the idea of being middle-aged was insulting because it implies you're old. Oh. But, like, if you live 80 years, your 40s is middle-aged, right? Is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm happy to be in my 40s. Exactly. Good. Which, yeah, well, so what are your thoughts about getting older? <laughs> That's our first thing's first question. Yes. Well... I've actually n- never been afraid of getting older, as far as I can remember. You know, and especially since I became a mother and have kind of come to terms with how my body changes in ways that are perfectly natural and out of my control. You know, like pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, postpartum recovery, all of those processes that I went through, you know, that are so mammalian an animal, you know, and you just can't, you just have to go along for the ride. Like, I think that in some way prepared me for aging which is a natural biological process outside of my control you know you can try to resist it or you can kind of gracefully accept it and metabolize it and so I have practice at recognizing myself as part of an ancient process that has the reins that I don't have the reins and I think that oriented me towards aging such that I've been primed to look for its benefits and not be afraid of it I actually felt kind of proud when I found my first gray hair I did still pluck it but, (laughs) but I was like oh wow okay this is starting you know like I've earned this you have so earned it. there's this this proverb I don't know if you've heard of the the gray head is a crown of glory or splendor you know it's found in the way of righteousness and I've always loved that I, I hope I can be one of those women who doesn't dye her hair but keeps it gray I've known some women who have just a beautiful gray hair and they rock it and look perfectly comfortable in it and I want to I want to do that I don't want to dye it I would like to be seen as seasoned if I'm seasoned. (laughs) And I'm also a Jungian. Uh, There's a lot I appreciate about Carl Jung's ideas. And one of his concepts is that each person has this contrasexual soul inside them that kind of matures and emerges in midlife. And for a woman, that's her animus, her masculine side that's like outspoken, bold, active, firm, unyielding, unflappable, that has, you know, gravitas and, and leadership and I found it was genuinely hard to tap into those qualities when in the midst of like pregnancy and babies and nursing and diapers, like all of these things that require tenderness, you know, like your biology and your babies need you to be soft, need you to be responsive, adaptable, sensitive, flexible, you know, but when your babies are grown, you don't need to be that way anymore, like at least not to the same degree. And, you know, those qualities, they serve their purpose, you know, but then they can kind of they can fall away to a degree. And so as I grow older, I'm still very happily a woman, but I'm a different kind of woman. And it's just right for this season of life because I'm growing into my personal, I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) I have a friend who (laughs) said that when she went through menopause, she lost her filter. Oh, that's describing exactly the same thing. And I told my husband that, (laughs) and we both look at each other like, that worries me because I already (laughs) have no filter. (laughs) What will you be like? I know. I'm going to be, they're going to put me in like, you know, old lady jail. Old lady jail. I mean, because it's true, you need some of that. I don't care when, you know, when you have teenagers and then, you know, you need 
I, I feel like I need a lot of that, like, now as a writer coming into my sort of post-children career, I guess, if it's a career, I don't know, but, like... It's a to, career. To put your you opinion write, out people, there... People pay you to write. Yes, they do. It's career. Okay. <laughs> but, so, like, to put your opinion out there in the world and be open to criticism and having people disagree with it, like, it requires a let it roll off your back kind of thing which is not the way that I operated when my children were small when everything you just kind of take everything in and you feel everything so deeply and you care about everything and everyone I'm, I'm coming to not be in that space anymore and I so I don't define that as as that's what womanhood is is always being like that it's like that's a stage a super necessary stage of of womanhood of femininity but it's not the be all end all and so I'm coming into this this animus, this part of myself, I call I call it the professor. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I've had dreams about being the professor, like dreams of being in like my study, which actually looks like your study. Yeah. <laughs> With literally the leather chair. Oh, yeah. The, the walls covered in books, you know. And I, I have a little bit of that now in, in, in the house we just moved into. But um, like I dreamed about that before I had it. And I was like, I am that person. I can, I can be that. <laughs> so... That was, yeah, those are important dreams to me. But what would I say to my younger self or to women today? I guess um, I would say live your life in seasons. Just as your body is cyclical in a monthly way, so your body and your life, and even in some sense your psychology, are kind of seasonal, I think. And if you can go with the flow of that, um, I don't know. I think I think life will be easier for you, you know, if you can go with your with the way your biology is and so like if you can if you want to be a mom and and you want to get married and you can have you know babies earlier when it's easy to get pregnant um I think that's great and then you can enjoy sort of the the toughening up the closing up shop (laughs) kid wise you know the confidence the personal boundaries that I think just come naturally with age right and and go go with the grain and I think that'll make life easier and then you can enjoy your body instead of living at cross purposes with it um and then when fertility starts to decline when you're older and this is how I'm experiencing it then it feels like a relief rather than like this terror of like oh no it's ending it's like oh thank god you know okay I'm about ready to be done been there done that you know and so it's a finish line rather than it being like the ticking clock and so I think that's also part of what makes aging less scary for me and more spacious yeah I mean wow that is just so (laughs) anti-consumerist Interesting. I never, I never thought of that. Frame. Well, it is right because if you don't, it's everything from if you don't care about your gray hair to you don't need fertility treatments to get pregnant. Like all of those things are markets. Oh, every yeah. single one of those things: Botox, hair dye. I mean, I've read things about mm. how Botox is now being normalized the way dyeing your hair is normalized. Oh, right? Yeah, and that it's changes become more available. For everyone. Well, because yes, because it also starts this thing about. Nobody wants to be the person who is so different. If everyone you know is dying their hair, yeah, then all of a sudden you're making a statement when you're like, I, I, "I'm just right. being, you're just being, yeah, I'm, without I'm products." Literally, yes, I'm, I'm literally just not buying something and doing something <laughs> exactly. to myself. I'm, that's right, and then that would make you stand out. Yeah, and I think this mm-hmm. is part of how aging has become profoundly unnormalized, and the incentive mm-hmm. for that is market purchases to somehow thwart or disguise or uh, deny aging, which is, as you say, completely, utterly normal. And I like to add beats the alternative, because if you're not aging, you're dead. Ooh, right? that's right. In the sense that, <laughs> like, if you dead. stop aging, you've died. Right. You know? Aging is living. Aging is living. Mm-hmm. We're, we're getting to the point now where transhumanism is really 
exposing the dangerous side of this attitude. It's not just look good, feel good. It's don't die ever. There's an article in the free press this week about people who are investing in initiatives to defeat aging. Mm-hmm. Scientific research that you know can discover what makes our cells age and then prevent it, reverse it, and ultimately death. You know, it starts with cryogenics. When that stuff started, I think that was very. It's very uh, basic compared to what they're trying now. There are people who really believe that we will be able to sort of bring back the dead or live forever, Ooh. and I feel like that's profoundly antisocial. Yes. And I'm going to describe, I'm going to define antisocial here as being against the reality and interests of men and women. Mm-hmm. I'm on this kick now to never use the word human. We'll get uh, to that. <laughs> yes. So I'm always going to say men and women. Good. So denying that we have a natural lifespan is to deny what is most fundamental about us. We are evolved earthly creatures. Mm-hmm. We evolved out of the natural world and a rule of living things is that life is finite. Yep. It's like one of the like few things I remember from my really shitty biology education (laughs) and i agree with you that there's like some bright there's a lot of bright spots to getting older i feel wiser i feel less worried about a lot of things Mm -hmm. i felt a tremendous pressure to achieve as a younger person Mm. because i think our culture is really obsessed with youth yeah and i don't feel that way anymore well partly because i can't worry about winning you know the pulitzer 26 because i'm not 26 anymore (laughs) but i'm not old either i mean Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many people in my husband's or my parents' generation constantly say to me, oh, you're not old. Uh, Like, being in your 40s to these people who are in their 70s and 80s, it's nothing. It's like... You're still a youngin'. Talk to me when you have some (laughs) mileage on you. (laughs) So, it's only our youth-obsessed culture that promotes this idea that anyone, well, specifically women, are irrelevant after 40. Mm -hmm. And I think the data proves that older people tend to be happier and because they're wiser because they tend to be calmer more stable more mature i used to think i was really smart and wise in my 20s but i was still pretty stupid (laughs) and and that's not to say that youth isn't a wonderful incredible thing but it's not the end all be all of life and young people can't see this because they've only ever been young right but when you get to be 80 or 90 something you see clearly that youth was just the beginning of your life Mm -hmm. so i think i would tell my younger self this thing. This is just the beginning. There's no need to cram in an entire lifetime of knowledge or success or relationships into what is just the opening chapter. And this goes back to what we've been talking about. Like, why are we worried? Why are women worried that they need to set up a career in their 20s to the detriment of their own fertility and ability to partner fine? Because if we know, if we know that men are attracted to young women because there is a baked in, you know, fertility aspect Mm -hmm. to attraction, Mm -hmm. If you wait till your 30s to get married, although I did, <laughs> but I married someone older. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. Do as I say. Don't do what I did. It doesn't really make a lot of sense not to lock that in, in those mm-hmm. years. There's been this oversized emphasis on women and career in that time frame, which yes. it's cross-purposeful to biology on yes. several levels, not just fertility, but also just attraction. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just the opening chapter. People, you're not going to be... You're not going to be young forever no matter what you do. So do what do what works for youth. That's right. Seasons. Seasons. in order according to the season. And that probably works for men too. But for women, there's that extra... <laughs> mm-hmm. There's that extra layer because it really your fertility really does change. Yeah. So we're talking about two books today. We're talking about Hags by Victoria Smith. And we're talking about The Feminine Mystique. This year is the 60th anniversary of that book. That book was published in 63. 
Oh, wow. That's crazy. That is. It's had such an enormous impact, and yet times have changed so much. This is my second read through it. And right. My goodness. Yeah. It's right. It's really different from what she was describing. It's what's interesting is that she's trying to argue against something that she couldn't have the knowledge of that would just be sort of a fad, right? Or a phase, yeah. Right. This we have the data now that shows this period of time she's talking about, basically the fifties and the early sixties, I guess, where a large percentage of American women were were marrying very young. I mean, what we would call very young, and and having kids, and more importantly, that they were told that this was the only women were told that this was the only proper way to be a woman. Mm-hmm. But this was a phase, right? And probably, I would guess, influenced by the effects of world, of the Second World War. Yeah. And no one, including Ferdinand, could have predicted the huge social change that are, we're going to begin just five years after the book was published. Right. I mean, 68. <laughs> I don't think she could have really written this book in 73. No. It would have been... Totally different. It would have been totally different. She still... She could have written it, but it wouldn't have been about, oh my God, the house is on fire, the future is right. doomed. Right. Right. So she's looking what she can see, which is the last 20 years. And so she's recording this turn against the emancipation brought about by the final ripples of first wave feminism right. and back toward what we consider a narrow, very, uh, a narrow vision of female fulfillment, mm-hmm. which I think is a, it's so ironic though, right? Because <laughs> what she wants now is what everyone 60 years later, like including us is like, wait, no, don't go out and yeah. do your only your career in your 20s. And yes. end up 35, unmarried, and f- trying to figure out how you're going to have a kid if you want them. Exactly. It's like she didn't anticipate that, or she couldn't see it coming, or didn't see the problems inherent in what she was advising women to do. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this slippage, right, between what mm-hmm. Ferdinand is observing and the legacy of her book. And we can mm-hmm. see that slippage in Smith's book, mm-hmm. Hags, right? Ferdinand is talking about an ideology that was being pushed by consumerist culture, and to some degree by institutions, that believed in a singular best outcome for women. This is, of course, not the same as Smith's complaint that women spend more time on care, mm-hmm. whether it's for children or for elders, than men, and then they're thus being screwed over by it, by virtue of the fact that it can't be the same, because women are working just as much as men. Right. So I think Smith, uh, and she's probably not alone in this, has unconsciously updated Friedan's critique to be one about inequality, mm. mostly around care, also around the effects of absences from the labor market. When it's pretty clear to me that Friedan was talking about something else. Yeah. And they're related, but they're not the same. Yeah. So I found both these books in some way unconvincing and flawed. What Friedan says about homosexuality, for instance, would be considered completely out of date, mm-hmm. hopelessly antiquated. But I think they're, they were good books to read, and especially together. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're both worth reading, and... They, they are connected in some really interesting ways, although I have pretty big beefs with both of them, too. I first read The Feminine Mystique when I was a newlywed at 22 and working my first big job after college, coordinating cancer research studies, and I didn't have kids yet. This is kind of embarrassing to admit, but like my takeaway from reading it at that age and stage was the conclusion that housework sucks, it's degrading, and it's a waste of time. <laughs> like That was my big takeaway. From from what she wrote. And so my behavior followed suit for a while. I was very careless and disorganized with domestic labor. I didn't have good habits for cleaning up after meals. I would always like leave the dishes in the sink for the next day. You know, I, I didn't even know that I was supposed to like sweep the kitchen floor each night to get the food off. Like I just had no structure and I didn't care. 
it wasn't, it wasn't important. Fem- okay. It's because it didn't, yeah, it, it just wasn't important. It didn't matter like the life of the mind or like my, my work. Was like the real thing. Well, that and is house a was very, the leftovers. That is an age-old idea. <laughs> yeah. that the, the contemplative life is more valuable uh-huh. than the right than the life of the body. Than an engaged, yeah, flesh-focused life. Mm-hmm. But so, so it kind of like validated my desire to live like a slob, <laughs> basically. <laughs> even though I was married, and for Dan's dismal picture that she painted of like the pointlessness of homemaking, the drudgery of chores, the boredom of caring for one's physical space, it gave me this like faux sophisticated excuse to reject putting my life together, like domestically speaking. I know that wasn't her intention, but that was the effect that she had on me. I had like this snooty. I'm too smart to do the dishes. I'm too professional <laughs> to care about my home. That's too important to open mail. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what I tease my husband about constantly. <laughs> so, like, I look back and I'm pretty embarrassed by my immaturity of that time. But I think we all are about something. That, that's that's one for me. But it's been fascinating to revisit the feminine mystique 20 years and four kids later and just not resonate with it at all. My life is nothing like what she describes the suburban housewife's life being like. The, the emptiness, the boredom, the depression, having no inner self, no intellectual interests. You know, Ferdan wrote, I never knew a woman when I was growing up who used her mind, played her own part in the world, and also loved and had children. Yeah, that's... Like, what? It's very really? bifurcated, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, that just shocked me, like this either or between intellect and family. Like, I've had kids, I love my kids, and I never lost my life of the mind. And I, and I push back on Fernand's assumption that, you know, playing your own part in the world is synonymous with career or wage labor outside of the home. Like, that's an extremely narrow and capitalistic view of what the world is, right? And I suppose in her terms, you could say, I'm a housewife. I never use that term. I don't really know of anybody who well, uses that term. Well, now you call yourself a stay-at-home mom. A stay-at-home mom would be it, yeah. But, but even that doesn't really... But again, it's like stay. You stay at home. It's like it's because still, the action is elsewhere. Well, and <laughs> I'm and, staying put. <laughs> right. And you could forgive Fridan for thinking that when, you know, almost every single person who did who had a non volunteer position in our government was a man. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, I mean that's how it was at the time. Yeah. I so I can forgive her for, for thinking like that that things were this way, but the housewife that she describes is unrecognizable to me and so that's that was just kind of weird to be like you're describing my life but you're describing it like it's shit and so and it was just it was just kind of a little hard to take yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) um because i mean like i i i am i manage my home and clean it but i i homeschool i write i edit i podcast i take care of my kids that almost subhuman description she had of the mothers of her day, it felt so degrading and unrecognizable to me. I just felt really alienated from it. And it made it hard for me to believe her. I'm, I'm not saying that she's lying or necessarily inaccurate. I just didn't see myself in her descriptions of mothers. And so I, I guess just so much has changed since then. If it really was, as she said, the change is enormously drastic. You know, like, I, but, but I don't want to throw those women under the bus. Like, I don't know if it was... Is it really as bad? As she as she said, I feel like Ferdinand kind of throws them out of the bus. Those women who ruin their lives. Those women who have no inner self, no life of the mind. Like, they're, they're zombies. I mean, like, she paints them like <laughs> zombies waiting to die. And, and I mean, I mean, maybe some women really were that depressed. But I, I'm like, seriously, is it because of home and the family? Like, that can really, like, 
do that to you, maybe there's something else going on here. Well, and, and, I don't know. And also, there's got to be some sort of sele- selection bias going yeah. on here because it's there are women who couldn't imagine themselves without a very professional career, and their career means the most to them. Mm-hmm. Those there are those women, mm-hmm. and so those women in the, in a woman like that in this kind of society probably would yeah. have felt incredibly stifled. Because sure. I think there's one thing we can't go back and see really very well is the misogyny. Mm. The sort of um, just casual, take it for granted misogyny that, you know, a woman was just of less value in the world. Yeah. I agree that her perspective is very um, particular to her time and in a lot of ways expresses an anxiety about being a housewife that undoubtedly couldn't have been universal then. And right. certainly not universal now. Right. Yeah. So. But those are the people she was talking to. And that get all the, the lengthy quotes in her book that describe their their inner misery. Right. You know. And right. So, so, so clearly, if, the, if that's the women's self-description, then that was happening. But yeah, you're like, what's the pool of people you're talking to? And was anybody happy? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Any of them? And, and. And I, I also felt like alienated from the like the complaining, despairing, angry tone of hags, which also yeah. seemed to like it resent care work. And in her case, it was more yes. about aging parents. Where for Dan is more focused on care for children. But like this resentment over care for the bodies of other people, like that screams from the pages of both books. Yeah, which to me translates into resentment of the body in general, especially of the body which needs help. Which is always us at the beginning and at the end of life. Yes. Our bodies need help, right? And so I just think that goes really deep and really philosophical. And so that's part of why I'm interested in talking about this. Because I think so much of it is about the body and how you feel about the body. And about this denying of the naturalness, as we were just saying Mm -hmm. before, about it's normal for bodies to need care. Yes. And so it has to be normal for someone to provide that care. Right. And there's a lot of reluctance <laughs> in our culture to say, to just accept that mm-hmm. it's going, it should be women who do that work. Because, I mean, we could work up to this later, but maybe mm-hmm. I'll just say the silent part out loud now. Mm. If we believe that there is no difference between men and women, then we basically are saying that it's just some sort of crazy accident that women are the ones who birth babies. <laughs> and we're doing that now in the way that we promote surrogacy and we yes. basically don't acknowledge there's any specialness to the person who takes care of the baby. To say that it's men and women are the same and it doesn't matter who takes care of the babies, which is what is implicit in, in Smith's critique. Because she's saying, why should women have to do this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, because women have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't want to take care of children, don't have children. Yeah. That's what I chose. Yeah. But the idea that you could have a child and then just sort of like, because that's the thing underlying Mm -hmm. her critique. Who else is going to do it? Robots? (laughs) And the answer is always poor women. Exactly. In a market system. Right? It becomes this hidden class thing. Yeah. Like Mary Harrington says, like at the end of the day, somebody somewhere is doing the dishes. And if it's not you... Then it's either a robot or you're paying a poor woman to do it. Yeah. So there is no escape. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So a lot of this is about, it's about this idea of inequality, right? And so I want to start by talking about the term human because mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with the way that this term has, has now been distorted and even corrupted 
it has a corrosive effect on feminist discourse, mm-hmm. right? This was the rhetoric of, and purposefully, this was the rhetoric of first and second wave feminism, right? It comes from the feminism's debt to the abolitionist cause. Oh, That's right. where it comes from. Oh, I didn't Right? Because it was really easy to, not going to say it was entirely appropriate, but in some cases it might have been, to equate the role of women, the way they were treated, to the way a slave was treated. Because of sort of just the denial of not just rights, but also self-determination. So this is, here's for Dan, here's a first quote, for Dan talking about first waivers. The feminists had only one model, one image, one vision of a full and free human being, man. For until very recently, only men, though not all men, had the freedom and education necessary to realize their full abilities to pioneer and create and discover and map new trails for future generations. Only men had the vote the freedom to shape the major decisions of society. Only men had the freedom to love and enjoy love and decide for themselves in the eyes of their God the problems of right and wrong. Did women want these freedoms because they wanted to be men? Or did they want them because they also were human? That this is what feminism was all about was seen symbolically by Henrik Isbin when he said in the play A Doll's House in 1879 that a woman was simply a human being, he struck a new note in literature. Thousands of women in middle-class Europe and America in that Victorian time saw themselves in Nora. And in 1960, almost a century later, millions of American housewives who watched the play on television also saw themselves as they heard Nora say, I believe that before all else, I am a reasonable human being, just as you are. So let's start with the heart of this quote that I read. Did women want these freedoms because they wanted to be men? Or did they want them because they also were human? So this is the beginning, I think, yeah. of the erasure of sexual difference in, in the pursuit of rights. And maybe that's because I didn't grow up feeling less fully human than men, which is, I think, something we have to acknowledge, at least, yeah. even if we're going to strenuously argue against this use of language. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also didn't grow up feeling less fully human than men. So I, it's hard for me to resonate with that that call I mean I was always aware of the difference but it never struck me as a competitive difference as a matter of like haves and have nots I think the tricky thing is that yes both men and women exist within the overarching category of human but there is no simply human person there is no disembodied or generically bodied person and while intersex conditions and disorders of sexual development are real non-binary is not a thing (laughs) you know no generic people (laughs) okay we're either male humans or female humans and so while i agree with the framework of human rights that all people deserve when it comes to embodied realities like safety like sexuality we cannot hide behind the generically human the framework of human rights works great at the level of the mind and human reason which is what fridan is trying to emphasize it works at the level of highly educated white collar work Right. But it breaks down when you get to the body and to the realities of blue collar work. Exactly. Which is what Mary Harrington talks about in Feminism Against Progress. So human equality in terms of reason, it's great for women. Human equality in terms of the body is terrible for women and it's dangerous. I think non-binary is ridiculous too. If we were to try to steal man that argument, what's behind it is I don't want you to type me. Like I don't want you to say, oh, you're female, so you would be better at this, this, and the other. Even uh-huh. if in the aggregate... You know, in the most sex-equal countries, the paradise in Scandinavia, they find that women are more women and men are more likely to their career choices are going to be more sex segregated, uh-huh. and I feel like that's because 
the social safety net there eliminates the need for women to choose a, a, a career that is more male associated and therefore more remunerative. Mm. So if like, if you can have a great life being a teacher or being a tech person, you're like, oh, if, it's, if, if the money is equal, I might as well go work with people. Right. Which I, I like feel it. more satisfied by, for example. Right. Right. Because what now what's happening is, you know, they'll, you'll take a historical figure like Joan of Arc and people mm. will be like, oh, she was trans or she was non-binary because no. she's not. Right. So it's if you say this, the steel man argument is don't prejudge me. But what actually is happening with that rhetoric is it's basically saying, oh, you can't be female. The only people who obey these stereotypes are women. Yeah. So therefore, anyone who displayed yeah. any deviance from those is no longer female. Right. It's narrowing and gutting the category of female. Right. And like, like, oh, we'll take this one. We'll take that one. We'll take Joan of Arc. We'll take... It's like, no, you don't get to take those. Right. Those are women. <laughs> right. And and woman is a diverse category. Right. And, and so this idea of rights, right? So beh- besides having rights, what men have... Or um, maybe better said, as Friedan actually acknowledged, s- s- some men, right? Because mm-hmm. this is really a class issue at its heart. Mm-hmm. Men have what Friedan calls the privilege of self-actualization. This is a really important term, I think, for what's going on both then and now. Yes. So men of this certain class are not expected to do what women, who are stuck home with the kids, are told is not for them, right? So again, the word human comes up here. She's talking about Maslow. Professor Maslow found in his study that self-actualizing people invariably have a commitment, a sense of mission in life that makes them live in a very large human world, a frame of reference beyond privatism and preoccupation with the petty details of daily life. Mm. I mean, ouch! (laughs) (laughs) Petty details of daily life. That's classism and sexism rolled into a neat little phrase. Mm. So pithy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's so pithy. But this is the consistent complaint of feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Here's Smith recounting how she believed that overturning the inequality in the domestic sphere was the goal of feminism, and an achievable one at that. Like many women of my generation, I didn't think housework or child and elder care would be disproportionately loaded onto women by the time I reached middle age. The injustice of this had already been pointed out back in 1963 when Betty Friedan identified, quote, the problem that has no name. Resistance to a more equal distribution of domestic labor was, I was quite convinced, cohort-specific. Media representations of the so-called mummy wars make it look like a battle between aging traditionalists who wanted women barefoot and pregnant and young progressives who believed we should be able to make the same choices as men. It didn't cross my mind that men my age would end up wanting housewife in all but name, too. I thought that the problem that had no name had been vanquished by the naming. I didn't realize that feminism is like housework, like all women's work, requiring routine goings over, constant maintenance year after year. I couldn't see how much my own prejudices about older women, the universal mummy class, informed my unrealistic expectations regarding my own future. I simply thought these older women would have sorted matters quietly, invisibly, Domestic equality materializing like fresh-washed pants appearing in an underwear drawer. (laughs) So, if we put these two ideas together, namely this reliance on human Mm -hmm. as a term of art here, and this domestic drudgery dread thing, Mm -hmm. it seems as if the feminist contention is that caring for children or that doing housework, all the petty details of daily life, Mm -hmm. is subhuman. (laughs) And that means, because it's subhuman... 
follow the analogy, it's the work of women. So for women to be equal, which means equally human, they must not do these things. They have to escape these occupations, which is bonkers. I mean, that is like the most obviously anti-humanist, anti-natalist, anti-reality argument. It's it's insane. It is insane. I mean, it's it's just yeah. insane. I mean, for, for Dan calls housework and childcare petty details, you know, drudgery and boredom. And at one point, Smith calls domestic chores shitwork. Oh, right, because it's about, like, it's what you say. It's about poop. Yeah. There's poop. Cleaning butts. (laughs) So there's a sense in which she might be literally true, but also the phrase shit work is totally, like, that's disgusting. I'm above that, right? And so, so like, what does that say about bodies, right? Domestic work is about feeding our bodies. So meal planning, grocery shopping, cooking, doing the dishes, taking out the trash, all that is about food so that we can eat and not starve, right? Clothing our bodies, buying clothes, mending clothes, washing them, drying, folding, putting them away, all of that so that we're not naked. There's cleaning our bodies. You know, it's upkeep of the bathrooms, the sinks, the showers, the toilets, resting our bodies. It's making the bed, washing the sheets, picking up the bedroom so that we're clean, we're healthy, we're refreshed. Do you make your I kids mean, do chores? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Boys and girls, <laughs> they all do chores. So, like, these bodily care things are the prerequisites for self-actualization, <laughs> right? You think you'd care about fulfilling your dreams if you're hungry, if you're filthy, you know, if you're exhausted? And, and right, like, like I said earlier, needs. exactly. It's like, like Mary Harrington says, at the end of every party is somebody doing the dishes or like at the bottom of every self-actualization hierarchy <laughs> is somebody doing the dishes and taking out the bins, right? Or as Victoria Smith puts it in Hags, who cooked Judith Butler's dinner? Her mummy. (laughs) Yeah. Or her wife. Right. Or her housewife, right? And you can either be a class snob and think that you are simply above doing the dishes, that you're better than such embodied work that's too low and gross for you, or you could remember that doing the dishes is human, and here I mean in a good sense of the word human, like human animal, like because eating food is human and we have bodies. Like, would you rather just not eat? Would you rather be a disembodied spirit? Yeah. Smith has this great line in Hags where she says, second wave feminism deconstructed the housewife, but didn't get rid of the housework. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's <laughs> got to do it. And yeah. And unless we all go transhumanist and live forever as ones and zeros in the cloud, I mean, that, and that's a hellscape way worse than getting stuck with the dishes. <laughs> in my opinion, I'd rather do the dishes than be ones and zeros. So there's this phrase that came into my mind when I was knee deep in pacifiers and diapers. Well, I had a, and yeah. Yeah. I had a two year old and a baby. And this phrase over and over, I would tell it to my friends who were also moms. And I repeated it to myself don't despise the life of the body. And that was my mantra because it was always the temptation to despise the life and the needs and the limits of the body. Children need so much bodily care, and so do the elderly. And caring for the bodies of people that need help and who will die if they don't get that help, that's not petty. It is not shit work. It is not privatism. It's also not self-actualization. It's service. It's duty. It's love. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. And I would add both men and women are called in different ways, depending on their circumstances, to perform those duties of love and care. And it look different how they do that. I think it's a universal temptation to try and shirk hard work and duty. And I think in Fredan's day, some men, I guess these magazine writers that she worked with, because that's the frame in which she's looking through, I guess they were able to 
to partially do this by redefining domestic duties as uniquely feminine. I don't think they're uniquely feminine though. Having children is unique to women and there's there are some, you know, aspects of home care and home life that are going to be orchestrated around care for children and, and and the body in that way, but not all not all of it is. I definitely think like caring for older kids and caring for the elderly and caring for the house, I think that's everybody's job to pitch in, which is why I make my children do chores, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you should divvy that up, not in some 50-50 way, like here's exactly what I'm going to do, here's what you're going to do, and we have to make sure it's exactly even, but just in a way that makes sense within your family. Like you just got to talk about it, you got to figure it out. But all that to say, I think the word human is a way of erasing the reality of the family. Which is father, mother, children, yes. grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, in-laws, right? Like the sex differences and the age differences are extremely important. And so there's something about human that hides the sex difference, the age difference, and that can end up hurting people, even if the intention of those who use that is to help. Yeah, and I, I feel like now every time I hear the word human rights, I, I, I shiver. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it, it's being deployed against women's rights. If it once meant human as being equal to men, it's obviously now being used to erase sex distinction. And if you don't have sex, you have no sex-based rights. So this yeah. is the intent, I think, of the mantra, trans rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. Every single defense of a man wanting to say be admitted to women's sports starts with the in- seemingly innocuous plea, I'm a human being, mm-hmm. which is true. You're a homo sapiens. I get mm-hmm. it. But what's really below that, it's an emotional yeah. appeal to kindness that hides the crafty erasure of sex best rights. It says, don't look at the details. Mm-hmm. Just do what I say. Because mm-hmm. I'm human. I'm just like you. Uh-huh. So this is the, that's the way it gets turned Back on itself. The functional notion of human rights, which used to sort of have, used to have a claim, a useful claim. I mean, it was used in the abolition of slavery. It was used in early women's rights, women's suffrage. It was used in the civil rights. I mean, remember those iconic posters like, I am a man? Yes. Yeah. Um, Right? Mm -hmm. Which is, it's notable that it says, you know, those claims, I think, were very specific, where human was it was doing a certain kind of work. It was trying to say that everyone belongs to the class of men and women. We should treat all members of that class the way we treat some members of that class. Okay. But now it's a cover for this men's rights movement, a sexual yeah. rights movement. Yeah. Because it says, I'm human, so you have to do everything I say, because I'm mm. human. Mm. And the justification for ignoring sexual difference and asymmetries that result from male-female difference is, precisely, we're all just human beings. So Friedan might have fallen into this trap unaware, Mm -hmm. but it seems pretty clear to me that this is the endgame, the inevitable endgame of equating men with human and human with self-actualized. Yeah. And I just think that making women human doesn't elevate them, it erases them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And I have some skepticism, too, about this idea of self-actualization. First, how is it different from just plain old selfishness? And why does self-actualization seem to imply independence, disconnection, breaking away from the home, breaking away from relationships and duties of care? The idea seems to assume that we all have potential, which I agree with, and a desire to grow, as Ferdinand says elsewhere. But why does it seem like self-actualization requires becoming this individual autonomous self? Like why can't growing be growing together or growing closer? 
Like, why can't I fulfill my potential through synthesizing, through weaving things together rather than through, as she says, pioneering and discovering? Why does it have to be realized in some sense against the reality of the home and family? Right? There's this competitive framing to it. There's this beautiful poem by Rilke that I love. It begins like this. She who reconciles the ill-matched threads of her life and weaves them gratefully into a single cloth. And it goes on from there to describe this woman's relationship with God. But I just love that beginning, this weaving, this reconciling, it's connecting. It takes what comes and then it makes it beautiful, which is a different way of becoming oneself and becoming whole. And it's a way that feels more grounded to me than like rejecting familial obligation through, you know, for Dan's idea of self-actualization. Well, self-actualization is deny the body, live the life of the mind. Yeah. Yeah, but then then you're but, losing yourself. You're, I mean, why is your body and yourself different? Like, it, right. you are your body. And well, that's where <laughs> you know that's that's exactly what's being contested in in, yeah. in, in with with this idea of cross sex fantasy, right? right? It's no, I'm whoever I say I am, right? Mm. And the body is just one more canvas where I express it. And it's just a set of services now that I can buy from my body. You know, we talked about this before, the idea that puberty isn't natural, right? It's you, mm-hmm. can, you can opt out because right. it's your right as a human being <laughs> to self-actualize, to self-actualize by, by going against by nature. Going against nature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's scary because yeah. it's always worse for women whenever these things exactly. get, whenever these things become popular, it's always yep. worse for women. And I think, you know, to the extent that feminists continue to obsess over this distinction between earning and caring, between career and home, between self-fulfillment and drudgery, this instinct, this impulse to somehow remove this injustice will just, it's only going to create more female erasure. Yeah. And it's, and that's the, that's the sort of certain irony there, right? Because women like Smith are openly against this gender woo. And she talks a lot about how like a lot of the book actually makes these good points. We'll talk with some of which we'll get to later about how, you know, it's middle-aged women who are being called labeled as bigots yep. because they don't acknowledge trans women or women. Mm-hmm. But so if they're calling out this exploitation of domestic inequality. They're still playing into the hands of the gender Borg because yeah. it, it forwards this fantasy that if we can only unfemale ourselves, right. And that's what young mm-hmm. women do who, when, who they often they say puberty doesn't suit me. Right. Right. Yep. They're trying to unfemale themselves. The idea there is we won't be victims of what she calls mm-hmm. a form of theft, transferring leisure time, opportunities, and material resources from one sex class to another. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd struggle to relate to Smith's language about women as a sex class. Feminism card canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I, I think the framework of class is an abstraction that we invent and then impose on reality, whereas I feel like the framework of family, which is both male and female, is organic and fundamental. The family creates reality. It literally makes more people, (laughs) right? But class is like herding cats. I don't know, like there's no natural sort of gravity there except maybe resentment. So I I don't know, and I I don't buy into the mythos of like the evil patriarchy either. So at one point Smith writes, from a historical perspective, the sheer effort that men have put into persuading women that we are morally and or biologically pre-programmed to undertake dull, repetitive work behind closed doors for no pay whatsoever is staggering. It would have been less effort for them to just do the dishes themselves. 
And I feel like I need to rework that assertion, kind of Harrington style. So here's here's my take. Go the sheer it. effort that feminists have put into persuading women that mothering, homemaking, and caring for family is dull, repetitive work that should be outsourced to lower class women for minimal pay so that we, worthier women, can self-actualize outside of the home is staggering. It would have been less effort for them to just do the dishes themselves. <laughs> In modern culture, there's a bias that if something becomes associated with women, it becomes devalued, right? Because, mm. like, nursing or, mm. like, a lot, many careers that are now traditionally associated with women, especially in free dance time, you could be a nurse, a teacher. Like, my mother yeah. grew up with, the, with that stereotype. You could be a nurse, a teacher, a social worker, a secretary, mm-hmm. you know? And so those professions were lower paid because they were associated with women. And now, like you, see, we can we can watch data do this. Um, yep. We can see how when men, for example, get persuaded to enter the nursing field, salaries increase. Yep. This bias is real. Yeah. But at the same time, feminism has to grapple with this idea that something can be associated with women, but that it's still worthy. Oh, right. There's just this fundamental bias in Western culture against the flesh. Yes. Yeah. Right. So everybody wants to flee it. Yes. (laughs) You know, feminism that says, you know, we're not, we're not doing the dishes anymore. Yeah. Has a problem because then who does the dishes? Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Somebody always has to do it. It's like, what, who is that hidden person? And why is that not valued? And why is it so awful? I mean, Illich, if we right. had Illich in here, he'd yeah. be like, well, the reason it's awful is because, you know, you're alone. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, exactly. you're alone do, going to the grocery store. Yes. You're alone cooking your food. You're alone yes. doing the laundry. And that's very, mm-hmm. I mean, Friedan yeah. doesn't seem to draw a distinction between right. the work and the conditions under which the work was done. That's right. I'm so glad you brought that and up. And because... he goes on and on about that. How, he does. Like, you know, the difference between driving to the grocery store, buying some eggs, mm-hmm. you know, and making them as opposed to having your children gather the kindling, picking the yep. eggs out from your chicken coop. Yep. And putting them on the fire. Yeah. And and then and he raised the issue of like, well, why would women be so lonely at home and so miserable? Well, because of indoor plumbing. Because they can just go to the tap and get water instead of what did women always used to do since forever is you walk to the well, the common well, and you see all your friends, right? Because right. all the houses are in walking laundry. distance. And Camille, you're doing, yeah, like Camille Camille Paglia. Paglia talks about this. That's right. About all the Italian women. That's right. They'd all get to, you know, they pack a picnic and they take all their washing and they take it to, you know, El Sorgo on the, yeah. the mountain in Sicily and they'd all do. They're washing the clothes and all the women were together. All the generations of the women were yes. together with the children. And so you were not alone and you were not doing the work all by yourself, you know, waiting for the kids to come home from school and waiting for your husband to come home from work so you'd have somebody to talk to. It's like you had more than enough people to talk to. Right. And you had more than enough hands to share the work. Right. It's like Fridan doesn't, my memory, she doesn't talk about that, like that transition at all. She just sort of starts with the 1950s housewife and the way things are now. And I'm like... That suburban house is an anomaly. It's new and it's weird. Yeah. You know, like the little nuclear family in your little perfectly well-plumbed home, like where you're all by yourself. That's weird. Yeah. And and like Camille Paglia points out, that kind of makes women miserable. They're lonely. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but don't... Social creatures. But but yeah, so I feel like Ferdinand kind of misfires by not acknowledging that. 
the shining world of, you know, the city and industry and Mm. culture making. And the solution seemed obvious in that, oh, yeah, women should do that, too. And it's fine. Like, women, some women. Some women will. (laughs) Yeah, but the idea is that. She's she's questioning who gets the who gets which chit. She's not questioning the system of right. She's not questioning the, the system as a whole. Right. Her view's not broad enough. Like if you look at the critique in the narrow way she frames it, you're like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But it's just like you got to see broader. You got to see more historically. And then you go, ah, I feel like this is just framed wrong. So now that we've hacked them both to bits, <laughs> let's at least uh, do our listeners the favor of. Talking a little bit about the key statements of these texts. Okay. Okay. So here's a key statement moment about what the feminine mystique is. Because we've sort of assumed that our readers have that context. But our listeners, the readers will have that context. But the (laughs) listeners only. (laughs) Do your homework. (laughs) The feminine mystique says that the highest value and the only commitment for women is the fulfillment of their own femininity. It says that the great mistake of Western culture through most of its history has been the undervaluation of this femininity. It says this femininity is so mysterious and intuitive and close to the creation and origin of life that man-made science may never be able to understand it. But however special and different, it is in no way inferior to the nature of man. It may even, in certain respects, be superior. The mistake, says the mystique, the root of women's troubles in the past is that women envied men, women tried to be like men, instead of accepting their own nature which can find fulfillment only in sexual passivity, male domination, and nurturing maternal love. So, I realize I actually agree with the portion of the feminine mystique that Ferdinand criticizes. Like, I I do think that the great mistake of Western culture, since the Reformation, since the rise of industrial capitalism, since the loss of the gendered world that Mm -hmm. Ivan Illich talks about, that great mistake was the undervaluation of femininity. I think... The Reformation's emphasis on the explicit over the implicit, its dethroning of the Virgin Mary from her queenly position, the desacramentalizing of the world, which is the desacramentalizing of matter, of flesh, right? The rejection of iconography and the visual beauty within the church, the rejection of the hierarchy of saints, which was full of women, the dissolution of the monasteries, which had given unmarried childless women an education and some authority and some higher status, I think all of these things contributed to an undervaluing of women and a narrowing of the things traditionally associated with the feminine. I feel like I'd rather say like the symbolic feminine in caps rather than femininity because I just think of like pink nails or something. I hear femininity. But so the Reformation basically turned all women into wives and mothers, which meant that the feminine was now totally sexualized. Even the Virgin Mary, like she loses her perpetual virginity around this time, right? And she becomes like... She becomes a housewife, right? Because that fits within the Reformation framework of what women are supposed to be. Um, So, you know, the monastic path of spiritual authority and sainthood for women, that's gone. You know, like exit the abbess, enter husbandly headship for all. You know, that's huge. And like we talked about in episode one, when we read Gender by Illich, industrial capitalism gutted the productive home. It exiled men from their homes and into factories and made the home into a place of shadow work and consumption. And that degraded and simplified what women were doing in the home. And so the sense of the feminine as strong, robust, creative, thrifty, managerial, skilled, necessary, like that got replaced with reliance on machines and products. And wages. And wages, right? And so no wonder women lost a sense of self-respect. Like technology changed what home and what work meant. And the loss of 
subsistence living narrowed the boundaries of feminine identity. You know, and in the, the Victorian era onwards, the cult of domesticity rewrote the meaning of femininity, and in doing so, it narrowed it further, and it like took the teeth out of it. So, yes, femininity is undervalued because it was redefined and curtailed to fit the modern world and make space for machines, I think. So, and for Dan's claim regarding envy, so according to her, the feminine mystique assumes that women were wrong to envy men and imitate them. And this sounds like Ferdinand thinks that, that we were right to envy men because they actually had it better. But again, I think looked through the lens of Ivan Illich, gendered envy has a start date. Envy began with the destruction of gendered worlds, worlds that had men's work and women's work, which were mutually necessary and mutually respected. And then that got replaced with capitalism's human worker, which yep. is generic. And now men and women both compete for unisex jobs out of the house, and they both try to avoid shadow work in the house. <laughs> so the envy is real, but the envy is new. Women envy men when the world of women is dismantled and replaced with neutered humans. So when, when people are viewed interchangeably, it's usually women who get the short end of the stick. Jeez Louise. Yeah. It's interesting because the backlash against gender, some people take the uh, the notion that there are no genders. Someone like Billboard Chris, I don't know if you've ever seen him online, he's, no. this, he's this Canadian dad who goes oh, around yes. and he stands out. Actually, yes, Billboard he, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, there are two sexes and no genders. And mm. I understand why he's saying that. He's yeah. saying gender identity is dumb. And he's, that's true, I agree. But... I think that historically it's clear that there are two genders because work, everything used to be associated with one or the other gender. Yes. Yeah. Gender is the instantiation of sex in culture. Yes. So if sex is real and your culture is living, is embracing that reality, the way that culture instantiates that reality in itself is mm-hmm. what we call gender. Right. Or what's Illich? Illich just convinced me on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I buy it. The gender critical people want to get rid of gender altogether because the way it's been redefined has caused so much harm. Mm-hmm. And of course, feminists don't want to say that there's women, men's work and women's work because that would be unfair. Uh-huh. If you don't, if if there are no genders, then you can't honor sex and culture. Then you're really back to the same point, which is that men and women are the same. Yeah, we're just and you humans. can't be a feminist and think that men and women are the same. No. Because we know that women get the short end of the stick when you start doing that. It's it's just this is obvious. Yeah. Well, should we read uh, Smith's quote here? Yes. This is her key idea. It's your key idea. <laughs> okay. Right now, we are experiencing a backlash against feminist gains, and middle-aged women form a perfect target for hostility. The ageist misogyny directed at middle-aged women today, or hag hate, as I've come to think of it, is insidious because it enables deeply regressive beliefs about what women should be. Young, beautiful, feminine, fertile, fuckable, to be recast as progressive. There are those who will claim that it's not middle-aged women who are the problem, it's just these middle-aged women here, now, who are particularly troublesome. It's regrettable, but Generation X women just so happen to fit a template which is every misogynist's dream, while also possessing enough freedom to make the misogyny they do experience look like something they have chosen, either in return for other privileges or because they are simply too ignorant to understand how misogyny works. Older women, just by virtue of being older, are associated with a quote-unquote more sexist past and thus appear complicit in a sexism which is on its way out. They are dinosaurs. 
Raging against them can feel like a break with the patriarchal past. The target of misogyny becomes an emblem for it. Get rid of her and the problem is solved. So with this quote, I have a I have a harder time knowing how to respond because neither side of the argument, like the young feminists and the old hag feminists, like neither is familiar to me because I, I don't really identify with the other camp because I wasn't raised inside a feminist milieu, right? Like, so I feel like I'm looking on from the outside and, and I'm saddened and, and frustrated with both sides. But I feel like that argument between those two sides is more part of your liberal upbringing. So maybe you can shed more light on like, what is that in-house fight? I think this is the best insight of Smith's book, is that feminism doesn't really have waves. It just consistently reassigns each generation to the wave that is taking the the heat. Because <laughs> she talks a lot about how she's not technically a, sec- a second wave feminist. She can't be, because she's too young. Yeah. Because, you know, the equal protections in, in, in employment, in particular, were passed before she was born. Mm-hmm. But... Modern feminists ascribe to her this antiquated stance. They call her second wave because they want to draw a distinction between their more progressive values and her more conservative values. And so it it captures this idea that the problem isn't society. It's, it's, it's older women. If they could just get with the program, then everything would be fine. That's such, I'm sorry, that's such like a family dynamic writ large. It's the 16-year-old <laughs> girl being like, oh my gosh, mom. Like, it's just that, just writ large, you know. But that makes me really sad if like, well, feminism is just socially on a broad scale playing out family dynamics, you know, of like, oh, mom. Yeah. Seriously? It's like, that's just what we're doing. Well, but it gets at the heart of that interge- of that generational conflict where you're taught that your self-actualization re- like requires the rejecting rejection, rejection of your mother of your mother that that's, your that's really sick to me that well, makes but, me angry and it makes smith angry too because she's like if feminism was supposed to be female solidarity right. well we've written into the way it functions politically right that it destroys it's it. the opposite of solidarity yeah right? no it's, it's reject your mother it's conquest's law that ah. like every organization is secretly run by its enemies <laughs> <laughs> that's right Right? I mean, what what better way to undermine feminism than to say there's no problem with society. It's just those sexist, bigoted, middle-aged women. Once they die, we have no problems. Because sex work is work, and trans women are women. It's like... Okay, so would you say that, like, the kind of feminism that we would ascribe to would be something that is, like, positive towards men in terms of, like, let's cooperate, not compete, but then also, like, is connecting with the mother and with the previous generation has respect and more of a sense of continuity rather than discontinuity with the older generation solidarity but solidarity but if if you see your mother living a life that you think is very restrict regimented and restricted because she can't have a career outside the home and even she wants for you something that she couldn't choose Mm -hmm. which is a dynamic that was absolutely present at that time right yep so you're absolutely going to believe that the key to progress is the abandonment of the model that you grew up with. You're absolutely going to think that. No, it, it's just astonishing how the dynamic of uh, Smith's generation is like, you know, how she grew up thinking that the problem of domestic labor would be solved. Today's, you know, younger feminists definitely think that if we could just get rid of these dinosaurs... Because those yeah. are the those are the that's the rhetoric being thrown around right. when, against women who don't believe that trans women right. are women. You're that the, is the rhetoric. You're the turfs. 
You're the dinosaurs. Yeah, you're the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Like, your, your, your ideas are out of date. Uh-huh. It's funny, because it goes back to what we were first talking about. It goes, you know, there's an obsession with, with, with youth. Yeah. Because youth is where the progress is. Yeah. Let's talk about these, uh, the self-actualization uh, narrative. This is the part that made me want to compare these books, because yeah. you can see what a culture wanted from people, by the way, the narratives it pushes. So this yeah. is was at the core of the research that Fridan did for her book. I sat for many days in the New York Public Library going back through bound volumes of American women's magazines for the last 20 years. I found a change in the image of the American woman and in the boundaries of the women's world as sharp and puzzling as the changes revealed in cores of ocean sediment. In 1939, the heroines of women's magazine stories were not always young, but in a certain sense they were younger than their fictional counterparts today. They were young in the same way that the American hero has always been young. They were new women, creating with a gay, determined spirit a new identity for women, a life of their own. There was an aura about them of becoming, of moving into a future that was going to be different from the past. The majority of heroines in the four major women's magazines were career women, happily, proudly, adventurously, attractively career women, who loved and were loved by men, and the spirit, courage, independence, determination... The strength of character they showed in their work as nurses, teachers, artists, actresses, copywriters, saleswomen were part of their charm. There was a definite aura that their individuality was something to be admired, not unattractive to men, that men were drawn to them as much for their spirit and character as for their looks. And of course, Mm -hmm. then she contrasts this with what happened in the 50s, where the magazines were like completely about domesticity and totally excluded all mention of the... The yeah, outside world. All about the baby and getting the man, keeping the man, and being kind of being a sort good of infantile femininity of like, oh, you know, God help me, I can't do it. You know, it's just very, yeah, very passive, very silly. It was very a, narrow. It was embarrassing. Very narrow. Yeah. But, I mean, probably not any more shallow than women's magazines are today. Yeah. It's just a different I mean, set God of things. I mean, God help the archaeologists who are going to use that to judge our world. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, and I know it might be kind of snobby of me, but I am—I was an English major, so I guess I get to say this, but I'm generally pretty skeptical of the value of magazine fiction. I mean, a narrative of self-actualization written for a magazine is probably going to be propaganda of one kind or another. You Undoubtedly. Know, it's, it's either propaganda for career or propaganda for family making, but it's not literature. You know, and for Dan likes the propaganda narratives of career women from the 1930s. She likes it a lot better. She likes yeah. it a lot better. <laughs> but she despises, like, the homey, shallow, catch-and-keep-a-man twaddle in the magazines of her day. Okay, but it's still all twaddle, in my opinion. I'm like, go read a book and get a real heroine. Jane Eyre, Shakespeare's Beatrice, Fantine from Les Mis, Joe March, Elizabeth Bennett, Margaret Hale, Anne of Green Gables, <laughs> Dorothea Brooke, Helen Graham, Amy Dorrit. I mean, heck, even Anna Karenina, or Lady <laughs> Macbeth, like, better a villain than propaganda, I think. So, I, women should be reading real literature in which female characters are deep and multifaceted, tragic, victorious, complicated, you name it. But it kind of makes my skin crawl to hear for Dan, like, wax on about career girls. It just feels really myopic and modern, rather than universal and real, the way that real literature and, and women in real literature are rather so complicated mothers are not like they're it's complex and so i i don't see the the sort of the magazine stuff that she's talking about as being different you know from the housewife fluff i just think it's it's the other side of the coin in interesting opinion. but i mean it is fascinating on some level how you know if if the 1930s uh literature 
or, you know, were more willing to sort of, to indulge this, even if they're both fantasies, uh-huh. you know, to indulge the fantasy of a sort of heroic kind of woman, a more mm-hmm. active kind of woman, mm-hmm. how quickly that was just sort of put up in smoke after yeah. the war. I mean, that That's is... right. The men came home and then, poof, it just flipped. Right. I mean, that, it, it, it was... It worked out nicely, right? Because you get first wave feminism and then, you know, you get these women who have these different ideas about their role in the world and then you get the war where that came in super handy because, you know, it was yeah. this, this coalescing of a economy, a yeah. wartime economy that needed them right. to Rosie participate the yeah. and a sort of backstory, you know, a feminist backstory that, oh yeah, this is, we could definitely do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that worked out quite handily. Yeah. I guess I find it intriguing because I feel like the narratives, I feel like young women don't learn from literature. They learn from this Drek. Yeah. Because I, I, I feel like yeah. so much of what, because I think we both agree that, you know, this idea that you can opt out of puberty and be a man is completely spread by, you know, non-literature yeah. culture. It's spread by on, on the on, internet. Online stuff rather yeah. than magazines. Per right, se, but, but it's, yeah. so Tumblr it's, is the the yeah, women's magazine equivalent. There you go. Yeah. So it was because it was every it was the thing that everyone was doing. Well, right, not mm-hmm. everyone, but the people. Right, and you can take a few minutes and just dive right in and right rather than like oh, I have to concentrate and sit and read a book for. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Even silly ideas have real impact. I guess is 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 what I've the conclusion I've come to. Oh, that just makes me so sad. Like the idealist in me just crumbles to pieces when I hear that. I just, it's true. It's true. It just though. makes me really because I, just I mean hate to face that. Yeah, dumb ideas can have a lot of currency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason that so many young people are adopting one of these alphabet identities is because they want to belong. Mm. While the identity thing may be new, the need to belong is the same. Yeah. It's it's an identical urge. It's the same urge. That's right. But it's so, it's become so, again, isolated, like detached from the body and detached from family and detached from religion in a way. You lose touch with all of those things. Like those used to be the core of what gave people an identity. Well, here's my family. Like here's, here's my sex body. This kind of gives me a trajectory. Here's the faith I'm a part of and the cultural traditions we have, you know, it, it grounds you. And so they're just completely ungrounded and untethered into just pure mind online. It's like, good luck finding some kind of stable identity floating in the void of the internet. Right. I was listening to uh, Gender, A Wider Lens, and they were interviewing so Eliza good. Mongreen. I was listening to that this morning. Oh, okay. So good. She talks about how when you go online now, and of course this is not our experience because we're not teenagers, being online as a teenager means being asked the question, what is your gender? Like, you can't avoid it. Like, even if you... Even if you have been successfully schooled by your family or whatever to not believe the bullshit, mm-hmm. it is not optional. Like, engaging online means engaging with that issue. Right. And both sexes are vulnerable to the idea of, you know, the what if. Like, mm. you know, if being a man means you're toxic, why wouldn't you opt to present yourself exactly. as a woman online? Or if being a woman online means that creepy men sexually harass you, why wouldn't you want to, exactly. you know? And so, and, and on one level, that seems pretty harmless, but on another level, if you spend a lot of time engaging in that modality where you've chosen to present yourself for whatever reason as a different way, you might actually believe it. Wow. 
Because I don't understand how any horny teenager can can think they're the opposite sex because they're feeling those feelings as that sex because they're that sex. Right. Right. It, it just requires an uh, an immense disconnection from embodiment. Yes. But yeah. I mean, if you're on your phone all the time. Yeah. Maybe that's... Yeah. And, and I think the other thing about this is so interesting is that data about these trends, about more people coming out as transgender, it's solely among the young. And partly yes. is that because they're... So there's there's a lot of parts to that. One is the obvious part is they're more online. They're more yeah. well, they're more online in though in those contexts where yes. this question is not avoidable. But you know what I think another part of it is? It's because they're healthy. Because youth is correlate in most uh, cases with health. So you can ignore your body. You can you ignore good. your body because it's not making you hurt all the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You get older and your you know, your stuff starts to go a little skewy. Yeah. You're like you gotta yeah. call the doctor because you know your body's telling you, I'm here. Right. Yeah. 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 No, younger people are healthy. That's right. They they really don't live in their body in that way. Mm, They're right. not constantly called back right. to be like, oh, that's right. This hurts. Yeah. Or this is not working right. Yeah. Do you know uh do you know Corinna Cohn? Of course. I've heard Heterodorks. Of Heterodorks. That's Heterodorks. Great. Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. Yeah. So <laughs> he I guess I can say he because he wants people to use the pronouns that they actually want to use. He doesn't dictate. So I'll say he um is it transgender woman? Transsexual. Sort of? Transsexual. I think okay. I would say. I think he he transed at like 19, 20, Before ever like having that. had... He's a gay man yeah. who right. went who never through transition had a partner. in the yeah. naive assumption yeah. that he, he wasn't supposed to be yeah. gay. But he was pretty like removed from connection with his body. He described himself at like 13 or whatever, like really uncomfortable with himself, disgusted with his body, online a lot, and then... Um, and, and starting to kind of stew in these possible trans ideas right like oh, i'd rather be a woman and then so, there's some connection i don't know if it was a family member or an uncle or something he went on this like boy scouts trip yes and it was like we listened to the same podcast <laughs> it was like a week or two where he's like like got a huge you know rucksack but, yeah, on his and back and his, the rucksack is like digging holes in his flesh that's right like, those are uncomfortable back exactly then. like and so he's got all this all this pain but he's like getting like he was not athletic at all. So he's like getting wiry and he's getting into his body and he's doing this hard physical stuff all the time. He says when he came back from that, he had quite a few weeks of, he didn't, he wasn't in that trans space anymore. He was in his body. He right. felt like a boy and right. he was a boy. And he was glad about it. But then he got back into online and he just kind of fell right. like again. And I was like, wow, that's, that's so meaningful and deep. Like that to reconnect with your body like that. Even it, there was nothing like sexual about doing those experiences, no. right? It wasn't, but just getting back in touch with his body uh, in in, a, in that that physical, physically hard work, hard labor way enabled him to be a little more comfortable with his with his sex, with his sexuality. I was like, right. Oh, that's it, super meaningful. <laughs> right, and I mean, if you took away their phones, then they couldn't escape, and everyone knows right. what that feels like. Oh yeah. So like you do sort of forget about. Your body when you're watching television or like yeah. you do disengage. Yeah, and that yeah. that feeling can feel like relief, but then if you get stuck in that, like I need to feel exactly the way I feel. Yeah. You know, I need my body to represent this thing, this feeling that I only have mm-hmm. in my mind. Well, that's uh, what a mess. Yeah, I just I didn't read the article because I don't pay for the New York Times anymore. But I saw the headline. Oh, that I can was, send stuff to you. Maybe you can send me this. Maybe you read it. But it was this this article saying like. 
oh, we acknowledge that like social media and the internet is bad for youth, except for LGBTQ yeah, of youth. Course. They really need it. And I'm like, it's for this exact reason. Yes, they need it course. because it facilitates the disembodiment and that, you know, and getting into this total headspace away from reality. It's like, oh, it's bad for everybody else except y'all. Really? Yeah. Like, I just like, oh, come on. That's special pleading right there. Well, you and know? it's also and it's this, very revealing. It's backwards because the, the idea of that is the saying you need people who are like you. Mm. But I mean, if 40% of younger people are identifying as alphabet soup. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's true that if you're gay, your pool of people who are also gay is going to be a smaller subset of the population. You're going right. to be a minority population. That's true. Yeah. This the whole thing that we're in comes out of this idea that in the internet, to find, like, to find light. So it's you just feel like a minority anymore. So you can, like, be yourself, quote unquote, because, of course, the idea is that the, you know, the victim narrative basis mm-hmm. of all this is like, you know, the outer world, the real world is hostile to you. So you need to retreat from the real world to find acceptance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, but the internet world is is it's not like a solace to this identity you already have. It's creating an identity that wouldn't have been there. Well, and also they're not going to they're not going to cook your meals or bring your flowers. Exactly, or, mommy's going to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they don't. <laughs> That's right. It's not a real community. It's not a real community. Because it doesn't have body. <laughs> right. Right. It, it, it doesn't... It do, I mean, this idea that you can be th- truly seen by someone that you've never met physically in person. Risky idea. Yeah. Risky idea. Yeah. That's a big problem. Did you see the article about somatic therapy? Yes, also in you the Times in the magazine? So good. Right? So good. Yep. Because I'm oh, right, I did send Get, that to you. Getting back in this touch idea, with like body. that, you can heal the mind by. I mean, that is like every. You'd think that the penetration of Eastern spiritualism in the West would have sort of, you know, that wouldn't be yeah. so still so new. But it's like, but it's also old. Like I'm like, this is the sacramentality that we lost. Like this is this is what sacraments and you know spiritual practices and liturgy is. Right. It's the it's the involvement of the body in in religious experience you know where they're where they're holy one they're connected so it's like we have it you know it's indigenous to western culture we've got our own you know true we've just kind of protestant wise you kind of pulled away from that into into our lovely you know sermon headspace where it's all about the ideas you know which is kind of like talk therapy let's just talk 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 let's get lots of words and we'll get better it's like uh, no how about some somatic therapy how about kneeling (laughs) How about processing? How about bowing? How about, you know, like, get, get your get your body involved, right? Like, how about no more Zoom church? How about COVID is <laughs> over? Get your butt off the couch and go to church, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, that is... <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, like, Zoom church is the same as an online community, mm-hmm. right? It's premised on the same notion that we can find, we can use technology to substitute for an embodied kind of connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. Do you think maybe like in 10 years there'll be a thing where you have like an offline college? You go to a place and you just don't do the internet? Oh, yeah. I think it's going to become like you the just, next like high class you, thing. Like everybody the gives you a typewriter. <laughs> you get a typewriter and a library card oh. and then you just like, you spend four years only talking to the... 
My I have yeah. my grandparents' letters that because I mean my Hand grandparents letters. yes probably would not have gotten married because she they were she's a war bride I mean they you know they worked together they actually both worked for MGM in New York uh, in the thirties you know the the war just really changed the, the trajectory of so many people's lives and uh, my grandfather enlisted and they corresponded wow. and they had essentially a course a courtship by correspondence. Did he propose through the letters? I don't think so. Okay. But wow, it's fascinating. I, yeah. I, I've I've read through some of them, and the I and it occurred to me to write something about it. But talk about petty details of everyday life. I mean, <laughs> but like those are the actions of like that whole process of just sort of communicating about your day to day life. That is living. It is. We shouldn't there, despise it. The there isn't this. There isn't this like the sadness of the internet of these communities where that you know Eliza Mondegreen watches on Reddit. This this whole obsession that seems to take over you know too many young people about whether their what their identity is. It seems to be this kind of rabbit hole of self actualization. Because it's not good enough just to have a life where you help your mom out and you go to school and you read a book and you meet with some friends and you're in band or whatever. Right. Like There seems to be something fundamentally not good enough about those things. Right. There's no, there's no meaning in that. So you have to go online and talk about how you really feel, what who you truly are. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, I agree that people do want a transcendent purpose, but I, I think that's what religion is for. You know, a particularly religion that doesn't discount the body, but that that respects and values the body. There's like this sort of the, the self-actualization is sort of like the therapeutic substitute for religious connectedness to a higher purpose. But it's the disembodied kind and it's the self-enclosed kind rather than the, oh, you feel miserable, go help someone. Right. Like it, it isolates you. It cuts you off from family and community rather than, you know, because it's. Ah, oh, to, to be myself, you know, like Nora, I've got to leave, right? That's how I find myself. Who took cor- take care than... of Nora's kids when she left? The maid? A poor woman? <laughs> <Rather> <laughs> I'm going to bet you. Exactly. Yeah, so I just think, I mean, even the word, you know, religion comes from religio, which means to bind, mm-hmm. to bind together, right? And so, so I think, I think it's fine and normal that that people are like looking for looking for a meaning or a higher purpose but the thought that you would find it online and find it in contrast to all these other things around you you'd find it against your body against your family against i don't know just sort of normal life i'm like uh uh-uh. uh no like if something is true and good and beautiful and real it's going to holistically like a macrocosm, it's going to include all of the parts. It's going to subsume everything. It's not going to like lop off parts of reality. Or lop off parts of your body. Or lop off parts of your body, like, exactly. Like, like literally. Literally, cut yes. you off. Yes. It's like the metaphor is becoming concretized. It's so strange. It's very strange. Right, and talk about like anti-mother. What is lopping off your breasts other than like... This sort of, like this symbolic sacramental act of I repudiate motherhood. I repudiate n- nurture. I repudiate connectedness and giving. Like it's just like what 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 are breasts a symbol of, right? Like I nurture you. I give to you. I give to you from my own body, from my own self. You know, it's just it's very it's very sad. It's very dystopian. I mean, I understand. Yeah. I think I could sympathize with young women being delusional in that way. 
it's because with yeah. with 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 influence, it's you can yeah. believe anything. Anyone can believe anything, even someone older. Yeah. But I don't understand the doctors who are doing it. Right. I I don't understand how like, I don't I just don't understand how you could do that in good conscience. I I don't know. So this is follow up quote from Smith about what I was talking about how about being assigned to waves of feminism, not chronologically, but with this repeating idea that it's always the avant-garde who solved it and the retrograde who's mm. the older feminists who are the problem. Mm-hmm. If you study the way in which feminism is described using the wave metaphor, you will notice a curious thing has happened. Despite occasional rumblings about a fourth or even a fifth, there hasn't really been another wave after the third. Instead, women once deemed to be third wave progress along a conveyor belt towards the past, whereupon they are granted second wave status. In strictly chronological terms, the second wave of activism originated in the 60s, the third in the 90s, which would make me and other women approaching their 50s third waivers. However, as Astrid Henry notes in her 2004 book, Not My Mother's Sister, quote, while Generation X ages, the third wave remains young, unhinging the relationship between the two terms. It would appear then that third wave suggests a particular politics is the province of the young, end quote. Whether or not it is an honor to age into second wave status depends on your perspective. Having done none of the work, I'm rather taken with the idea of being able to shove my girl power t-shirt into the back of the drawer and claim responsibility for a legislation that had nothing whatsoever to do with me. To others, such as at the time of writing, 87,000 people favoring a tweet which declares both feminism and COVID-19 to have, quote, problematic second waves, (laughs) it might appear less flattering. Either way, I'm not a second-wave feminist. I'm just someone who isn't allowed to be a third-wave one anymore because of what experience has done to my body and my perspective. That's the the insight that makes this book worthwhile. Yes. Because that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that idolization of youth. And the idea that you could age out of it. Third-wave feminism is what brings you sex positivity and Mm -hmm. uh, sex work is real work. And younger women are so much more likely to believe that's true if they grow up in this culture of... They're right there because they have... All the messaging is telling them, believe this or you're you're old, Mm -hmm. which they're not, obviously, right? And also, they don't have their own sexual experience, really, to understand what that even signifies, really. That's right. right. Yeah, they're having pornified sexual experiences because of the way that that men are. Because it's gotten out of hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and my immediate thought was that this means that the movement is just, it's going to lack, you know, third wave feminism will lack wisdom and experience, and so it's going to self-destruct, right? Like it Absolutely. means that, you know, given and given the prominence of the pill, I think fewer third wave feminists will end up being mothers, you know? And so I think a women's movement that doesn't have a maternal perspective in it somewhere is going to be blind to certain important parts of reality, because I think that being a mother does change you and it makes you aware of certain things you wouldn't be aware of before. And just, and growing older changes you and it makes you aware of things, right? Things open up. And so if you cut out the maternal perspective and you cut out the older woman perspective, like, okay, good luck. Like (laughs) crash and burn is coming. You know, it can't. We are really literally making the case for a cabal (laughs) of enemies running feminism. But like, that is the point because if you cut off young women from the vice of their elders, they can just be co-opted to, like, right. support... Which is what's happening. Yeah. 
to support like if your feminism doesn't include trans women you're not really feminist i mean that is the dogma right of third wave feminism right that is the dogma wow and i mean as we're going to talk about next time sex work is normalized it is normalized it is reasonable now for a young woman to consider OnlyFans or um, this thing I sent you about um, these, like, sugar daddy sites. Oh. Like, it's normalized. Bring wow. back stigma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd That's be a great placard to hold. Bring back stigma. <laughs> yeah, and it's great. It's crazy because I sound like this, like, you know, I sound like Matt Walsh when I say that. And you are not Matt and Walsh. And I'm not Matt, Matt Walsh. Oh, God. It, it's just, it's very painful because being a progressive requires you to basically ignore the advice of your elders. I mean, it, it's set up uh, as this very anti... It's almost as if the political, the cultural priors of this kind of, of progressivism are being laid bare mm-hmm. in the, in this 10-year period. And that cultural prior is, you know, don't take anyone's advice about, you know... A lot of people, like, if this the whole meme is going around, like, the, um, you know who G.K. Chesterton was? He was oh, yeah. And the, the, the fence. Oh, yeah. The Chesterton's fence. fence? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, don't assume that something has no value because you don't know why it was put there. That's right. Like, That's... don't just take something down. Right. Like, you don't have a right to take down the fence that you don't understand Stand. until you know why people put it there. Right. And may- maybe they were dumb. Maybe they were old-fashioned. Maybe, right. maybe, maybe it's a it terrible the, reason. Maybe it was the cat in the meditation. Have you ever read <laughs> Eat, Pray, Love? No. Where she talks about, there's this monastery, like she went to India for the prey part, oh. and there's this monastery where there was a cat, uh, they had a cat, and the cat would bother people during meditation, so they would put it on a leash oh. at the cent- in the center, uh-huh. and of course, that gradually got turned into a rule that in order to meditate, you needed a cat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. A cat on a leash. <laughs> so, like, yes. that process can happen too, uh-huh. so, uh-huh. but... Yeah, the, the 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 fence rule still stands. Right. Like right. you need you know, to understand. You need to understand why it was there. That's right. And like, why you... wasn't why wasn't you know sex work normalized prior to like a minute and a half ago? <laughs> well, because it harms women. Right. That's why. Right. Right. You know, it seems yeah. really basic, people. Yeah, and I I just think I have to realize like that the stigmas of the past and the traditions of the past, like the fences. The people in the past weren't idiots. They they actually have something to contribute. And you have to at least understand it before you just dispense with it. Right, but that's the whole thing about progress. Oh, those people were bigoted. and Because the people of the past embraced slavery and racism. And yeah. that's really where this right. that's so where that throw comes out in. The whole, you just throw out the whole past right. to make sure you don't right. get like, a little speck of right. racism on you anywhere. Right. It's like everything's Right, fine. right. Yeah. No, it absolutely works that way. No, it's like we're obsessed with this, you know, you do you as if no harm can come of you doing you. Oh, gracious. Right? Yeah. Thank God that I can't do me all the time. I, just... <laughs> I like That'd that. That'd be terrible too. for my family and friends if I did me all the time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Mm. Hyperbole and feminism leads to female erasure. Let's, yeah, let's quote for Dan here. You want to read it for us? Sure. She says, It is not an exaggeration to call the stagnating state of millions of American housewives a sickness. 
a disease in the shape of a progressively weaker core of human self that is being handed down to their sons and daughters at a time when the dehumanizing aspects of modern mass culture make it necessary for men and women to have a strong core of self, strong enough to retain human individuality through the frightening, unpredictable pressures of our changing environment. The strength of women is not the cause, but the cure for this sickness. Only when women are permitted to use their full strength to grow to their full capacities can the feminine mystique be shattered and the progressive dehumanization of their children be stopped. And most women can no longer use their full strength, grow to their full human capacity as housewives. It is urgent to understand how the very condition of being a housewife can create a sense of emptiness, non-existence, nothingness in women. There are aspects of the housewife role that make it almost impossible for a woman of adult intelligence to retain a sense of human identity, the firm core of self or I, without which a human being, man or woman, is not truly alive. Sorry, I have to like hold back a little vomit. It's <laughs> <laughs> worse. Okay. For women of ability in America today, I am convinced there is something about the housewife state itself that is dangerous. In a sense, that is not as far-fetched as it sounds. The women who adjust as housewives, who grew up wanting to be just a housewife, are in as much danger as the millions who walked to their own death in the concentration camps and the millions more who refused to believe that the concentration camps existed. So that is a quote from Fernand, and that is like, I'm writing a piece about this for oh, yeah? for, uh, for Zivaldone good, about because good. um this this rhetoric this like comparison of your whatever you think is unjust to compare it to Nazi concentration camps not obviously not new this is sixty years yeah sixty mm-hmm. years ago I don't know if you saw that British cycling decided trans women have to compete in the open or male category. Oh, and they won't that. be allowed to compete as women because they're not women. Uh-huh. Hello, obviousness. One of the cyclists, um, his name's Emily Bridges. He wrote mm-hmm. a screed in which he said he called this genocide. Oh gosh! Right. So this we go. this temptation is not new. Mm-hmm. This temptation is mm-hmm. super old. Mm-hmm. And this is this hyperbole is is exactly. It's this is how like you achieve escape velocity from like the terms of reality which you originally started out with. Whatever you think of depressed, you know, quaalude-popping housewives, to compare that to a concentration <laughs> camp is a little much. Yeah. I know. Like, when you begin a statement with, it's not an exaggeration. Like, I'm not going to tell you that, blah, blah, blah. Right. Exactly. Uh-huh. Like, you're about to hear an exaggeration. So, so to for Dan, becoming housewife is dangerous. It's like walking into a concentration camp. I mean... That is strong language, especially for a woman who was Jewish. I looked it up. She was Jewish. And it's so it's not like she didn't know what that meant. But I, I just can't help feeling like she's engaging in a lot of projection because she was very unhappy. But as she a wasn't a housewife. A she only. was. She's a journalist. She wrote a book. Yeah, well, she did. But she, I guess, experienced enough of mothering and housewifery <laughs> to, to feel like, got to get out. You know, And she gave up her fellowship and... She was going to get this really big fellowship, oh, and, and okay. her fiancé was kind of like, oh, I'll never have something as good as you. And she's like, okay, we'll do your thing, honey. And she kind of, like, gave up this, I think, potential, like, PhD in psychology or, like, this career she could have gone into, and then she went into magazines instead. And so I think she viewed that as kind of like, a, oh, I didn't fulfill my potential. Oh, okay. I didn't fulfill it for a man. 
Okay. You know, so she's got this chip on her shoulder about that. Like, she regretted her own choices to a degree, and I think she felt stifled at home, right? And so she, she did work at the same time. And it's like, okay, that happened. But to extrapolate from that and from the interviews that she does with other housewives who felt similarly, and of course, there you know, there were women who did feel similarly, to extrapolate from that to the assumption that the problem is the family, the problem is the children, the problem is the embodied work of the home. You know, those nasty Nazis are, are, are who? Is it your kids? Are the Nazis like they're those? They're gonna destroy your life. They're gonna suck out your soul. I just don't buy it. I, I feel like it's a demonization of children. Frankly, it reminds me of the same kind of language that's used about pregnancy by some really ardent pro-choice people who kind of frame the fetus as this parasite, as this intruder, <laughs> right? Like I've totally heard that language. This thief who's gonna steal all your joy and steal all your opportunities in life, you know. And so it's like a matter of survival and self-actualization to abort the baby, right? Like, I feel like this is just a continuation or, or it's in continuity with that same attitude. Like, they're out and about, they're running around, you know, you can't abort them, but you could get away from them. And because they might be out to get you. I don't know, it's just really weird. It's very, I don't know, it feels kind of Freudian to me. Like, what, what do you, why do you think your children are trying to kill you? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think any, any framework that pits a woman against her children, whether they're in utero or in your home, I think it's sick. I think it's ideological because it takes what is genuinely natural. Like family formation happens. It's natural. And and, then, and it casts it in this sort of villainous, dangerous light when it's just very normal. You know, it's just anti, anti-reality. I apologize. I mean, I react really strongly to Ferdinand on this you point. You never because, have to apologize. This is a no okay. apologies podcast. No apologies. All right. I'm angry at Ferdinand <laughs> because I feel deeply insulted by this assumption that you have to choose between your brain and your kids between your personal identity and your family. I just want to give a little personal example that's more on the like cheerful, hopeful side to counter this kind of concentration camp mentality from Fredan and her dire warnings. You know, sort of abandon hope, all ye who enter family life. You know, when my twins were still in diapers, my husband bought me a book and it was this anniversary gift and it was called A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. It's this big, fat book. Mm, so I love big, fat books. It's great. I was thrilled. It's a fascinating book. And he also gave me this, this perfect anniversary card to go with it that had two <laughs> zombies on the cover. And the man zombies like chasing the woman zombie with flowers. And inside the card says, I love you for your brains. Here I am, like, double nursing twins, like, double fisting it, like, nursing babies. I'm in the thick of, like, all that maternal stuff. And he gave me this gift of this, like, super intellectual book. And, like, I love you for your brains. And it's like, those things coexist in my family. And they always have. And and that that's, feels so normal to me. I don't know. So I just can't recognize this total death of the mind that, that Ferdan goes on about. I just, I don't recognize it. So maybe I'm the singular exception to her hellscape of home life. I don't think I am. I, I don't share her priors. You know, I, I don't think you discover or forge your identity by solitariness, by individuality. I think, I think our identities are always negotiated in relationship with other people, right? Like we all participate in identifying one another. And, and to bring it forward to today's problems, I think that Ferdinand's assumption that identity is individually and personally discovered regardless of what others think and against the norm and in contrast to the family, I think that's a perfect setup for gender woo. Of course. You know, and like where gender identity is forcing itself onto and into families through the act of confused teenagers who are defining themselves against the body, against the family who raised them. You know, it's they're forging and finding a path for themselves, you know, but it doesn't look like what Ferdinand thought it would look like. 
Right, and they're but literally it's the same like attitude. throwing off the names that their family gave them. Yeah, that's crazy to like not to no longer identify, to say, "Mom, Dad, I reject the name you gave me. I'm going to call myself something else." Yeah, it just seems like otherworldly level of yeah disintegration. Yeah, dis yeah, there you go disintegration. And I feel like for Dan is encouraging women to pursue a path of disintegration. In a way, like she's saying, you can't hold these things together. You can't have them at the same time. You stay home, you're going to be a blank. You're going to want to die. Yeah. I mean, she really frames it that way. And she's like, and she, there's this whole part of the book where she talks about like, once you're not fertile, like once you have your last kid, you know, maybe you have your last kid at 40 if you if you go there and have mm-hmm. a late baby. After 40, because you're not having children anymore, you're just curling up and ready to die. Right. You're just an empty shell of a person. Yeah, you're, you're a just, crust. <laughs> like what? What is this? That I don't feel. I don't feel like the leftovers. I feel like a whole new part of my life is opening up before me. Right. I'm super excited about that. Right. So I'm just like, wow. What? Yeah. No, and I think what you're describing is the slippage between the feminine mystique as an attitude and the feminine mystique mm. as a life choice. Mm. Because I think it's entirely possible that you have raised four kids and you haven't really worked outside the home in a way that for Dan views as the sort of core of self-actualization. Right. But at the same time, you have done all that in an environment and in a society and a marriage and a family that views women's intellectual curiosity as equal to that of men's. Absolutely. Maybe part of what we're missing is that it was this attitude that was pervasive that Uh changed so much of that experience. For Dan didn't have a way for her desire to be validated, even if she did make the... Because it is all choices, right? It's all right. trade-offs in the end. Maybe the real rub wasn't to steal man her, I guess, like, or sure. steal woman her, I guess. <laughs> maybe, like, for Dan has been taken too literally. So maybe what you're benefiting from is the idea that the attitude has totally changed. Maybe Nora's <laughs> husband should have given her a big, thick book. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know! And then maybe she wouldn't have left home. <laughs> You've been like, Nora, I love you for your brains. Brains, yeah. Right? Again, it's like, I, I have a wonderful husband, you know? I, I I feel so supported, and I had a father who encouraged my intellectual interests, and so I just never saw family as being in opposition to those things. But apparently in Ferdan's day, the, in that social milieu, women, right, women were fed twaddle in magazines and thought that's, you know, over and over she used this phrase, like, that's all they can handle. You know, that the men in the magazine were right, women right. can't handle ideas. They don't want big ideas. I'm like, ideas are my love language. My husband shows me he loves me by like, hey, I read this interesting thing today. I'm like, ooh, tell me more. Like, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> my love no. language. So, I, so, so it's true. So the attitude has changed. I, I know so many so many other mothers who, who have lots of other outside interests and things that they do and are involved right. in. And, right. and those totally mesh in, in today's world. So something did change. And maybe if, if like we take... Take for Dan with a grain of salt, but take this idea of don't give up the life of your mind, you know, but, but discard the idea that, that has to, that family and mind are in competition or separate the idea of the life of the mind from a career. Like that's right. the part that there I'm not get. Cause that's if somebody right. wants me to pay me to stay home, I am available. <laughs> <laughs> pay me. I'll take it. Not having to go and earn money outside the home does for you a lot. In some ways I kept reading the book and being like, that sounds fucking great. <laughs> like be at home all day with no obligations. Just set your own, set your own schedule. Sign me up. Yeah. Where do I get one of these uh, housewife right. gigs? <laughs> What's a little clean 
entertaining when you can like be thinking, you know, about whatever. Like I tell you, I do. I do all my chores with you know with earbuds in. So exactly. I'm to podcasts thinking exactly. all freaking day long. Exactly. It is great. It exactly. Is great. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Because for Dan, she conflates career with the life of the mind with engagement in the world. Right. She she think she just uses them like interchangeably. I'm like. Those are very, very different, different things. things. Very different. And also, like, even just, like, having a job is also not the same thing as career. You know, like, most people have jobs. have jobs. They go to the office. Like, it's they're turning in their TPS reports. They're not, like, self-actualizing because they're passionate about their work. Like, yeah. no, most people are earning a paycheck so they can live, so they can feed their freaking bodies. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. it is that practical for most of us. So, but, yeah, she does conflate, you know, world, mind, career in a way that's not really fair and the comparison to the showa is really all about this idea that the opposite of utter individualized self-actualization is death which is bullshit yeah yeah because it, it has this way of turning inside out this notion of suffering mm. like it equates it equates taking care of others or being taken care of or having life in the suburbs with with death yeah. like that's not death no like, that's again that's so natural that's family that's yeah it's being a person in relationship with other people well and just this idea of suffering i mean if, if that is right. the epitome of of this uh, it's very it's very very suggestive of something deeply awry this 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 pro-victim kind of hyperbole ah. that's sort of what i'm exploring in, in my see. in my piece about this okay. because it's, you can forgive hyperbole if you know it's, I, I mean, you can see hyperbole for what it is, but like what's beneath it? Like, you know, if you can't self-actualize, why is that death? What does that mean about mm. what's left over? I don't think that like early humans were, you know, the unhappy walking around in the, you know, forest or whatever, like, yeah. you know, picking up their food for the day. Right. <laughs> that what sounds did, pretty. What did people do before pretty... self-actualization? <laughs> What, what what was the top? What was at the top of the hierarchy before the self showed up there? Having a full belly, I think. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Final quote here. This is from Hags. In age-wise, Margaret Morganroth Gillette associates a rise in ageism being positioned as a narrative of inevitable decline, set in opposition to moral and political progress narratives. I think there is a similar decline narrative tagged to femaleness as female people are considered more worthless sexually, reproductively, and economically than their male peers as they age. Mainstream feminism is, by contrast, a progress narrative. The movement that represents women goes forwards while actual women go backwards, moving even further from the liberated, evolved ideal the older they get. Hence the bizarre chronological fudges and definitional revisions which characterize modern feminism. What is often described as a tension between younger liberal feminism and older radical feminism often comes down to something else. The movement is deemed more worthy than those it represents. Feminism is not an idea, not a body. It's not dragged down by the accumulation of flesh, relationships, Mm. and compromise. Mm. The end point of this thinking sees femaleness in its entirety being treated as outdated. In a sketch for his Netflix special, Supernature, Ricky Gervais parodied tensions between trans activists and feminists by playing off, quote, the old-fashioned women, the ones with wounds, those fucking dinosaurs, against the new women. Many found the sketch crass, but I think it captured a manifestation of misogyny that is real and has been emerging for quite some time. So, she sort of sees it, right? Yep. 
she sees this this built in kind of you know bug. Yeah. Or maybe it's a feature if it's controlled by a cabal of its enemies. <laughs> that you know femaleness is being is 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 outdated. It's like the very the movement is deemed more worthy than those it represents. I mean that captures That's it precisely, key. right? Yes. Trans women are women. That that's basically saying the movement is more worthy than those it represents because it's supposed to represent women, but it's being made to represent men. That's right. And this claim that I've seen it, you know, various trans women say that they're better women than they're better. Oh being, yeah, they're be, doing better, it better. women than they're like absolutely doing it better. Women. Because yeah. guess why they're doing it better? Because they don't have periods. <laughs> they have pretend periods, right? That's right. They don't. They're not actually having babies. <laughs> they don't have babies, right? They do it better because they're. Because they're erasing us. Yeah. Because femininity obviously isn't being female, right? So who could do femininity better than someone who doesn't also have the burden of the being real femaleness female. to to deal with? Yeah. Right. Ooh. And I I think yeah I just I think it comes back to the body because there's something about older women and women who've gone through pregnancy and childbirth who just intuitively get the limits of reality, you know, and that progress progress always comes with trade offs. And like that reality check of the the seasoned female body and intuition is really offensive to progress religion. Right, because they haven't it. found a way to progress around it. Right. I mean, the only thing they've found a way to do is to like let poor women do it with surrogacy and stuff. No, it's it's super dystopian. We are living the dystopia. Yeah. What are we doing next time? Well, I think we're going to read... The older book is Sex and the Single Girl. Yes. I think. uh, In conversation with Louise Perry's... The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Case Against Sexual Revolution. Yeah. When the chickens come home to roost. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That would be interesting. My joke would be, it's now Sex of the Single Girl. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'll post that reading details soon. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't don't be as sad as we are. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sad. We'll be okay. <laughs> See you next time. Bye.